are listening to the Good Shepherd Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Our mission at Good Shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. One of the main ways we believe that we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word. We believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church. Our desire is to preach Christ crucified for you, which means we hope that Jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. It is just before Psalms, the book of Psalms. If you find Psalms or maybe Proverbs as you open to the middle of your Bible, uh, you can go back just a couple of books and you can find the book of Job. probably looks like Job in your Bible. Job 15. We are going through this sermon series. Job is a man who was marked out by God to suffer and was a person who was marked out by God to suffer so that the realities of the work of the gospel would be clarified in our hearts even here and now. So Job points to the sufferings of Jesus on our behalf in a great way. So there's much to see in Job's suffering, and there's much of Job's life that is much like your life and my life. Uh, the reality is suffering is anything that's not as it intended to be. Anything that is even a shade off of life as it was meant to be would fall into the category of suffering. And that can be everything from stubbed toes, disappointing sports losses, or the cataclysmic, chaotic, destructive, and traumatic. 
suffering, if you're paying attention to your own heart and your own world, is prevalent. There's nobody here in this room, and I would argue no one on this planet, who has not experienced suffering. So we all have a great need for what Job offers us, probably other than Jesus Christ, the greatest sufferer on the planet. In Job 15, we just got done with round one of confrontations with Job's friends, his three friends. Uh, We have been uh, really kind of out of chapter three and four. There's a kind of different uh, tornadoes of conversation with Job's three friends who represent all of the world's wisdom as it has to offer. Uh, And round and round they go. Job's friend would levy an accusation against Job and Job would argue back. We'd hear the other friend levy an accusation against Job and Job would argue back. And same with the third friend. Well, we are done with round one and we are in the beginning of round two. And just as you might imagine the conversation is going to ramp up just a bit because if Job didn't have an opportunity for uh, for the three friends to be heard, well, the uh, friends are going to double down uh, on kind of what they're saying here. So though it'll be nothing new, uh, they'll present it in a new way. So it's, it's kind of same old, same old, but uh, you'd be surprised at the intensity uh, which these accusations are leveled against Job. You would be surprised maybe... Um, by the unashamedness of Job's friends or the lack of bashfulness of Job's friends. Uh, You think that they would be a little bit more sympathetic with the sufferer, but uh, you'll find, like I said at the beginning of this series, Job's friends are much like you and me. Sometimes we just don't know what to say when somebody suffers deeply. Job has ended the first round of conversations with his friends by putting his hope in divine grace. In chapter 14, Job gave us a picture of what exactly he was hoping for. In fact, if you go back to uh, chapter 14, you'll get just a taste of this in uh, verse 13, 14, and 15. Right around there, Job actually turns his face to God and says, Oh God, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past." that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands. Uh, Even uh, earlier in the chapter, uh, in chapter 13, Job would confess that though God even would slay him, though God would even take away the very breath of his lungs, the only thing Job had left that, God, that Job would trust in God's power to offer life on the backside of the grave. It doesn't always look this pretty for Job. It's pretty remarkable that Job would have this kind of hope and confidence in God. It doesn't always get this way in the book, but we see it here early on that at least Job had some sort of clarity in his hope that God could resurrect. This is something that suffering gives us clarity in. Suffering gives you clarity on your need for and the reality of divine grace. Suffering gives you clarity on your need for and the reality of divine grace. Only in suffering can you see what you really need. Suffering gets you right up to the edge, right up to the precipice of your greatest need. And ultimately, you can look into the 
uh, pit of suffering and see at its very bottom, the floor is death itself. And what we all need and what suffering truly clarifies for us is that bottom floor that we all need what Job put his trust in, the resurrection or life with God beyond the grave. But also we see in our suffering the reality of divine grace given to us by means of suffering. We see that God makes our suffering his own. In other words, you cannot see the very mercy of God, that grace beyond the grave that you long for, without looking headlong into God's own suffering. What you need is given to you by means of a cross. What you see as you look for God and his mercy is God's suffering. And this is what Job eventually would put his trust in. It's something that you and I desperately need, not just for us to suffer well, but for someone to suffer in our place. If we were to pass through death and try to manage it on our own, with our own spirituality, with our own righteousness, with all the things that we would have to offer God as reasons why he should give us new life, my friend, we would never survive. But if we look to Christ and his cross, we see one who suffered in our place. And there we find hope for eternal life. Well, now we enter a new round of confrontations with his friends and an even greater resistance against grace. And it's going to be ratcheted up quite an extra notch. It reminded me this week of how offensive grace can be. Why is grace so offensive? Why is grace so hard for our world? I would ask you honestly, when's the last time you saw with regularity or maybe with a kind of clarity grace offered in this world? When's the last time you saw hands extended in forgiveness? I don't remember which clip it was, but I remember it it impacting me greatly. One of the um, clips of a police officer uh, who um, shot somebody in the line of duty, and it was an unjust shooting, wasn't wasn't part of part of what this person was supposed to be doing. And um, the brother of the victim ends up even on the testimony stand asking if they could give uh, the. Uh, the the person responsible for his brother's death, a a hug, and offered her uh, some forgiveness. It's powerful. What you find in in this world, grace is really hard to capture. It's really hard to portray. It's really hard to find any of this. One preacher said this, "Is, is preaching the gospel of grace really the means by which God will save licentious people? Or to put it another way, is preaching grace what saves, or excuse me, is preaching grace what our relativistic and morally lax culture actually needs? I mean, surely God doesn't think that the saving solution for the immoral and rebellious is his free grace. That doesn't make any sense. It seems backward. Given our restraint-free cultural context, what, uh, what does, 
what doesn't make excuse me what does make sense to me is that preachers in our day should be very wary of talking about grace at all in fact it seems logical to me that the only way to save licentious people is to more forcefully exhort them to behave and isn't that what we get all too often in this world with religion Job's friends were masters at exhorting Job to behave. This makes sense to us. This is logical. This is what we get in this world all too often. What we very often hear is this idea of unsolicited pardon, unconditional acceptance, real grace. And what we're going to hear tonight is a further ratcheting up of the offense of grace, where Eliphaz, Job's first friend, is going to double down on a rejection of all things grace and double down on personal effort, double down on the reality of lawfulness, on the reality of self-righteousness. So he's going to, in our passage here tonight in Job 15, he's going to level very clear accusations against Job. He's going to be extremely clear with exactly how he is accusing Job, what Job uh, has done and what he continues to fall short in. But then secondly, we're going to see a picture that Eliphaz is going to paint as a contrast to the realities of Job's hope. Again, Job is putting all of his hope in grace beyond the grave, and Eliphaz is going to paint a picture of the complete antithesis of that idea of divine grace. So we're going to see this tonight. First, let's look at the accusation that uh, Eliphaz levels here. Job 15, the accusation. This is verses 1 through 16. He's going to give us a couple different ranges of Job's words. He's going to accuse Job's words of being a couple things, and he's going to put them in some in some ranges. Uh, the first thing that he accuses Job of, Job, your words are at best worthless and at worst dangerous. At best, your words are worthless and empty, and no one should really consider them, but really at their worst, if you buy into them, Your words can be quite dangerous. We should probably actually seek to work against what you're saying, Job. This is what Eliphaz says in chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Should he argue in unprofitable talk? Or in words with which he can do no good? But you are doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. For your iniquity teaches your mouth and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you and not I. Your own lips testify against you. The first thing that he accuses Job of of his words being is just worthless, just kind of empty speech, kind of this, man, you can't be serious, right? You actually hope that Job, you in your suffering, you in your badness, because we know that you don't get 
bad things without being bad yourself, of course. And you hope that you in your badness, God is just going to resurrect you after life. God's just going to accept you with no other terms or conditions without you getting your ducks in a row, without the stars aligning. You think God's just going to accept you? My friends, that is the most empty thing I can hear. It's unprofitable. It does no good. It does you no good, Job. What do you think? That's going to help you out in your life? It's going to save you here and now? It's going to get you along? It's going to strengthen you? Come on, man. And at best, or excuse me, and, and, and at worst, you're doing away with the fear of God. You're cheapening God. God would have you get better, Job. God would have you figure out your situation. God would have you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and figure this out. Come on, Job. Just have your devotions more. Pray a little bit more. You've got this. Be a little bit stronger. Be a little bit more competent. And by God, just show up to church every once in a while, Job. Please, you can do this. And I promise things will start to go well. But right now, you banking on free grace, you banking on mercy after your death, my friend, you're actually doing away with the fear of God. You're actually not taking God seriously. You're hindering proper meditation before God. Your iniquity teaches your mouth. It's pretty, it's pretty accusatory. He's basically saying your mouth isn't teaching your iniquity. Your iniquity is teaching your mouth. You don't even know what you're saying. Your sin is teaching you what to say. Your own mouth condemns you. All you have to do is keep running your mouth. And what you're doing is you're, you're just accusing your own self. You're telling us right here and right now, not only do you not have your act together, you don't want to have your act together. It's pretty condemning, Job. Your words are at best worthless and at worst they're dangerous. But also, your words are arrogant at best and self-righteous at worst. They're arrogant, or maybe worse, they're plumb self-righteous. This is verses 7 through 16. Are you the first man who was born? Or were you brought forth before the hills? Have you listened in the counsel of God? And do you know the... Uh, do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that is not clear to us? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, older than your father. Are the comforts of God too small for you? Or the word that deals gently with you? Why does your heart carry you away? And why do your eyes flash? that you turn your spirit against God and bring such words out of your mouth. What is a man that he can be pure? Or who is he born of a woman that can be righteous? Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. And how much less one who is abominable and corrupt like you, Job, a man who drinks injustice like water. I love this in verse 7. It's an unbelievable tactic by those who are bullying other people. Are you the only one? Are you the only one? Having studied a lot of Luther, uh, Martin Luther, uh, the reformer, 15th century reformer, uh, 16th century reformer, um, he wrestled with this idea big time. 
course, God was using him to lead a gospel refueling in Europe, a gospel clarity in Europe. And he wrestled often with Satan's accusations that he was the only one who was thinking this way. He was the only one, and Luther himself, even at times, really checked his heart, basically saying, am I the only one who has a corner of God's grace, who understands God's grace? I should be cautious. And certainly any of us in amount of human wisdom would say, yes, anytime we are the only ones saying things, we should be cautious. Certainly, from a human perspective, that seems right. This is exactly what Job's friends are accusing Job of being. Are you the only one? You believe in this idea of unjust suffering, that you're suffering merely just because God wants you to suffer, not because you're bad, not because you deserve this, but you're just suffering under God's sovereignty. You're the only one. One of the reasons people remain so skeptical of grace is because it's actually fairly rare in this world. I would even say in our lives, one of the reasons... We get so conditioned by law and acceptance and uh, conditionality uh, and reciprocity. The reason why we're so conditioned to these things and to these mechanics, not only is because of our sin nature that we were born with, but also just because of the lack of an understanding of God's grace. In other words, lawfulness is all we see in this world. It's everything we breathe. It's, it's everything, right? I mean, it's the reason why I'm stuck in this job, right? And I can't get ahead. Why? Because I have certain deficiencies and I just can't make them up. It's the reason I got that promotion. Look at all the things that I did. I put forth the effort. I put forth the work. I got the thing. It's the reason we're both self-righteous, but also it's the reason why we have uh, so many insecurities. Lawfulness is conditioned in us. Everything in life is about us and what we do. It's the reason I get ahead. It's the reason I fall behind. It's the reason my relationship's great. It's the reason my relationships are not great. Me, 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 me. It's all about what I do. It conditions us. And so when grace finally comes along, it seems like this far cry of reality. One of Satan's tactics is actually to minimize the true realities of grace. If he can get you to doubt grace on the basis of its quantities... He can get you to doubt grace on the basis of its quality. In other words, if he can get you to believe that grace is so rare, how could you find it? He'll get you to doubt the real realities or the substance of what God and his grace actually offer you. But scripture actually speaks extremely clear to this reality. That we only need one grace. If I can say it that way. Paul says this in Romans 5. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all sin because all sinned, so still Christ died for us. Life and righteousness also came through one man, Jesus Christ. Just as sin and death came through one man, my friend, our only answer is one solution, God's divine grace in Christ. Satan would love you to doubt grace in its quantities and therefore uproot grace in its quality. All you need is Jesus. All you need is one solution. And so, yeah, you're allowed to be the only one. You're not the only one. But you're allowed to hang on to Jesus and Jesus only. And my friend, you have all the grace of God that you need. 
Don't let Satan tempt you with this reality of grace isn't part of this world. My friends, it's definitely a part of this world. It's just hidden. It's just hidden in the one man, Jesus Christ. He gets to the end. There, he, uh, Eliphaz accuses Job of arrogance. Are you the only one? What, you have the corner of the market on God and his stuff? But also he says the worst part is you might actually be self-righteous. It's a little ironic, isn't it, in verse 14? What is man that he can be pure? Or he, or he who is born of a woman, can he be righteous? Can any man get to God on their own? Funny coming from these dudes who have told Job all along the steps that it takes to get righteous before God. All along, they have been telling Job, hey, if you just plug and play, if you would just seek after God, God would come your way, right? You do a little bit of Jesus stuff, Jesus comes your way. It's like 50-50, right? It's a little bit filled with hypocrisy. They actually speak the truth. What they say here is not wrong. It's just misapplied. Somehow, they are the ones who have gotten to God. They've figured out life. They're not the sufferers here, right? We figured it out. We're doing the right stuff. Look at our lives. We're clean, man. Job, if you would just come our way, you would understand. Oh, but we know. We, we know we can't be good enough on our own. God's helped us out. He's helped us out a little bit. But the reason he's helped us out is because we've been good little boys. We figured this out. We've got him to like look at us. We've met God halfway. God gives his grace. You do your work. You do your part. You come together. You make this great tag team, and life works out well. I love it. I grew up in a very religious setting, obviously. And I remember the struggles of this kind of hypocrisy. And I was always, even as a kid, I was so curious as to who sets the rules? Who, who gets to make all these rules? We're like, yes, you have to come to Jesus and then Jesus will come to you. Like, who sets the rules on like, what you have to do to get to Jesus? It could have been anything. Like Back in my day, it was like, how you dressed and like the music you listened to and how many times you went to church and whether or not you were reading your Bible every day of the week. It's like, if you did those things, that's when Jesus will come your way and life will work great. It's like, who gets to set that rule? Who gets to make like that arbitrary assignment that that's how far you have to come before God will start coming your way? Someone's making the rules. Somebody holds the secret formula. Somebody holds that. And the beauty that suffering was giving to Job is he, God blew that scenario all up, that hypocrisy right up in Job's mind. Job could see right through that hypocrisy. Like, no one holds the secret formula. No one makes the rules except God. It's a sham. It's a farce. But these guys were still playing the game. See, what's scary about religion, particularly the Christian religion as it is, is the yes, grace, but people or the yes, Jesus, but people. The people that are happy to claim Christian doctrine or a kind of purity of grace on the front end, but on the back end, sneak in all of these extra rules, sneak in all these extra set of conditions that we all have to meet in order to earn the grace that God so freely gives. It's the yes, Jesus, but you also have to do all these extra things. Yes, Jesus, but if you could just stop suffering, that would be great. 
yes, Jesus, but kind of clean up your mess first, and then you can come to church. That would be awesome. Religion always believes that the gospel is too good to be true. How are sinners going to be pure, Job? How are, how are sufferers going to get to God, Job? What are you talking about, man? None of us can just straight up walk into God's throne and say, God, I'm here with all of your mess. You can't do that. Well, my friend, you can by grace. The grace of Jesus allows sinners to be saved. The mercy found in Jesus allows sufferers to be redeemed. Oh, my friend, with Jesus, yes, it is too good to be true, but it is. Job's friends wanted two things to be extremely clear. When it came to God's grace, we earned it, and it wasn't free. You ever heard that in church before? You probably haven't, because no one's actually saying these things out loud. It's just hidden, right? Yes, there's the grace of Jesus. Yes, it is offered to anybody, but it's not free. And boy, howdy, we earned it. It's hidden, isn't it? But they accuse Job of arrogant and self-righteousness, not knowing all the while that they are hypocritical. And so Eliphaz then begins to paint a picture of what this anti-grace stance begins to look like. He gives us a little bit of a, a little bit of the tip of the cap. We begin to see some things pretty clearly here, uh, here at the beginning of the picture. He makes it very clear in verses 17 through 19. We should have red flags at this point. He makes it very clear that what he's about to say comes from, you guessed it, old men. Old men. Old men have passed down this great stuff. These old men who, like all of us, are bound to hit the grave and become a bag of bones in just mere years. Yes, these great old men. Look what he says here in in verse uh, 17 through 19. I will show you. Hear me. And what I have seen I will declare. What wise men have told without hiding it from their fathers, to whom alone the land was given and no stranger passed among them. Man, if there's anything that we've learned from history is that we all die. How about that? Yes, there's that old adage, the thing we've learned from history is that we haven't learned from history. But really, like the reality of history is like, man, like <clears throat> none of us have it. We're not getting better. 2020 teaches anything? Things aren't progressing like we thought. So let me tell you about wisdom that I've learned from a bunch of old men who have suffered just like I suffer, who've experienced life just like I experienced life, and then who succumb to death just like I am bound to succumb to death. The reality is Job was drawing all his wisdom from a different source. Suffering was giving him a different perspective. And this is what Job says in Job 12, 13. We've already covered this passage. Job says, with God, our wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. And Job's saying this, having already received from God's hand, the one he's been blaming all along, is the one who's been giving him the suffering. God has wisdom. God is the one who speaks and we listen to him. 
old men have really nothing to tell us. Again, there's some human wisdom. I'm not speaking about human wisdom. Of course, we need to learn from history. We need to learn from old dudes, right? I need to learn from my grandpa. He has much to say about my life. But when it comes to why I have sin and why I suffer, my friends, there is a short-circuiting because not even my grandpa can fully tell you, apart from divine grace, what the solution for that problem is. That is something that we have to have a wisdom from from God for, a counsel and an understanding from the divine throne room where we need answers. So, yes, we get a little tip of the picture. It's not going to be great. It's probably not going to be extremely accurate, but uh, he does say here, first of all, that guilty consciences live in fear. Newsflash. Guilty consciences live in fear. Verse 20. Job, come on, man. The wicked man writhes in pain all his days through all the years that are laid up for the ruthless. Dreadful sounds are in his ears. In prosperity, the destroyer will come upon him. He does not believe that he will return out of darkness, and he is marked for the sword. He wanders abroad for bread, saying, where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is ready at his hand. Distress and anguish terrify him. They prevail against him like a king ready for battle. Eliphaz is basically saying that if your conscience feels guilty, that's because it is. If your conscience feels guilty, Job, newsflash, it's probably because you've done something wrong. It's funny, my car does this kind of stuff. I'm driving and all of a sudden a light will come on and tell me some sort of problem. I'm usually pretty critical of my car. don't always think it's telling the truth. But inevitably, it oftentimes does, does, does what it's supposed to do, right? It does what it's supposed to do. It shows me a light, tells me something bad is about to happen, and if I ignore it long enough, it'll, it'll happen. This is great for a car, a car problem. Off goes the car light. And I think to myself, well, if I have no light, then I have no problem, right? should work that way. So that's not how it works. To actually solve the problem, you have to deal with the real issue. The light is just the thing. It's just the indicator, right? It's not the actual problem itself. It would do me no good to mask or put a little black tape over the check engine light and just say, done, taken care of, problem solved. The reason what Eliphaz is saying, the, the reason why he's saying this is because he literally thinks the problem is the light, You have a light going off. You have a guilty conscience, Job. If you would just find a way to deal with the guilty conscience, then you would be done. Look what I've done. I've got better. I've stopped my suffering. I've worked my way out of it. I've found a way to manage it. Not realizing that the indicator light is pointing to a greater issue that needs resurrection kind of fixing. The reason he believes that guilty consciences live in fears because he believes that he is the solution to his own problems. He's the solution to his own suffering. <clears throat> oftentimes, religion, not oftentimes, most of the time, all the time, religion tells us that the solution for our suffering and our sin is inside of us. If we can figure it out, the indicator life will just magically go off. But also, bad people inherit bad circumstances. Bad people inherit bad circumstances. Verses 25 through the end. Because he has stretched out his hand against God and defies the Almighty, running stubbornly against him with a thickly bossed shield, 
because he has covered his face with his fat and gathered fat upon his waist and has lived in desolate cities and houses that none should inhabit, which were ready to become heaps of ruins. He will not be rich and his wealth will not endure, nor will his possessions spread over the earth. He will not depart from darkness. The flame will dry up his shoots and by the breath of his mouth, the, uh, he will depart. Let him not trust in emptiness, deceiving himself, for emptiness will be his payment. It will be paid in full before his time, and his branch will not be green. He will shake off his unripe grape like the vine and cast off his blossom like the olive tree. For the company of the godless is barren, and fire consumes the tents of bribery. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil, and their womb prepares deceit. Bad people inherit bad circumstances. So, of course, Job, if you're found to have bad circumstances like you are, you must be a fairly bad person. Now, are there consequences for our bad actions? Absolutely. Ask my kids. Happens all the time. Ask me. I'll tell you. You do stupid things, you win stupid prizes. That is true. Newton's third law of natural law, I don't know, of nature... Every action has an equal and opposite reaction, right? It should make sense to us. If you speed, you should get a ticket, right? Natural consequences for natural things. But my friends, I think we would be foolish to not see a different kind of wisdom in God's spiritual economy. You cannot draw a straight line between people's circumstances and their level of deservedness when it comes to God and his acceptance. We cannot draw straight lines between people's circumstances and how God sees them. It's not that easy. It's not that straight of a line. Some people get more than they deserve in this life, and some people get less than they deserve in this life. This happened to me last night. We were at a Columbus Crew soccer game, and we literally, in the row right in front of us, were witnessing what was about to be a colossal fight. Not even kidding. Both people had to be expelled from the stadium. It was crazy. We missed 20 minutes of what was a great game. But in the middle of all of this, halftime, before they got kicked out, one of the ladies who was in front of us, who was arguing, who needed to be kicked out, they were doing a t-shirt contest. And guess who won the t-shirt? We were all so mad. She caught the t-shirt, and everyone around us was just like goffing at the ridiculousness of this moment. We all we were saying to each other, we deserve the T-shirt. All of us who had to deal with this garbage, we deserve the T-shirt. But life doesn't work that way, does it? Sometimes bad people get good things. Sometimes good people get bad things. There's a different value system in God's economy. And you can't draw a straight line between people's circumstances and how God is seeing them. The reality is a lot of us believe in our heart of hearts that horizontal consequences equals vertical condemnation. And that is what Job and his friends, Job's friends, were trying to get Job to see. That your horizontal circumstances are equating to vertical condemnation. And what Job had put his whole effort and hope in is the reality in chapter 14. God, put me in the grave and allow your 
wrath and your anger against my sin to blow over. I put my hope in the satisfaction of your wrath, not on myself because of my sin, but on somebody else's, on somebody else's shoulders because of their sin. And Jesus raises his hand and is that willing substitute. We call the big words called propitiation, this wrath satisfier, this wrath quencher. Someone who would take on God's wrath for us. Joe put his whole eggs of his basket in, into that basket of God's mercy. And they couldn't see, Job's friends couldn't see that what Job was suffering with here, here and now had nothing to do with God's acceptance of Job. In fact, if you wanted to argue any other way, it would be it was because God did accept Job that God was allowing the suffering to take place so that Job could see it in a clear way. My friend, this is true of you and me. Yes, certainly, in a natural sense, bad people do inherit bad circumstances. But my friend, that doesn't tell the whole story. It doesn't tell the whole story of why God would allow bad things to happen in your life. It doesn't tell the whole story of how God delights to view you or wants to see you or his offers to you or his grace to you. You say, well, then how do I see God's offer to me? How do I know how God wants to view me? Or how do I know God's grace? How do I see it? My friend, you look at the cross. You look at the cross. Something God has already given to us. Where all of God's anger has been poured out on Christ for your sin. Where your death took place in his death where life was offered to you through his resurrection. That's where you look. If you want to find the grace of God, you have to find the injustice of God first. You have to see how an innocent person suffered in your place. How God delighted to show mercy mixed with his justice so that we could be redeemed. Can I read a little story? I'm reading a book with a couple dudes here about fatherhood, and we're talking about the prodigal son. And one of the guys in processing the prodigal son tells this story about his own dad, and I wonder if it would hit home in your heart. The title of his story is called Not So Cheap Grace. When I was in the seventh grade, I failed my first confirmation test. At that time, I was not taking confirmation very seriously and decided I needed to study. I completely bombed. Or I didn't need to study. I completely bombed. This may not seem like that kind of a big deal, except that my father was the pastor. It didn't exactly look good to have his firstborn disrespecting the youth director by not taking the confirmation class seriously. When I got in the car after class, my mother was fuming. My teacher had informed her that I had failed. She said, you're the pastor's son and you failed confirmation? Just wait till your father gets home. It struck me at that moment that I had failed not only to uh, pass the test, but also, uh, not, I, excuse me, it struck me at that moment that I had failed not only the test, but also my dad. What people would think about a pastor whose son disrespected the church staff and wasn't serious about learning God's word, ugh, it was heavy. It does not reflect well on a pastor when he cannot seem to manage his own household well. When I got home, I went downstairs and awaited my dad's arrival with fear, uncertain of what, was he, what he was going to say to me. You might say that the law was working hard on me. I knew I was done for. 
So I was quite anxious for what uh, for when he called me upstairs to have a talk. I heard you failed your test. Yes, sir. Do you think you should have tried harder? Yes, sir. Okay. Do you want to watch the game? Um, yes, sir. Now, you don't know my dad, but in my home, the invitation to watch the game was as good as absolution. He never brought up my failure again. He never once mentioned anything about how a pastor's son should act in confirmation. He just invited me to watch the game. His first move was one of grace and not condemnation. In this, he removed fear from my relationship with him. From then on, I knew I didn't have to fear my dad when I got in trouble. He was on my side. I knew I could trust him to never treat me with anything less than forgiveness. Some of you would accuse my dad of cheap grace or think that he went too soft on me. You may think he just showed me that I could get away with anything without the fear of consequences. However, you should know that his actions produced the exact opposite result. His gracious attitude has, even to this day, produced in me a great respect and admiration for the man. Especially now, as I raise my own children, I am in awe of how he was able to handle my brother and me with such wisdom and grace. I can only pray that I can do the same with my children. Also, for what it's worth, I never failed another confirmation test. The reality is the father had already paid the cost. He already paid the cost of the shame. It had already gone over. It already happened. Okay. And again, certainly, no one's advocating for cheap grace. But grace is what it has always said to be. A free gift. A free gift. Specifically in the face of undeserving. Specifically in the face who can't get their act together. Those people. Specifically for the sufferer. Specifically for the down and outer. Grace is only available to those people. That's the definition of grace. Grace is rare, like I said in the beginning. Though often limited in quantity, its quality is transforming. And when you hear it in stories like this, it almost produces a kind of magic in this life. Where can I find that? Where can I find that kind of unconditional acceptance? Where I can tell the truth about myself. Where I can speak honestly to myself about myself and still be accepted. Grace is scary because it's not of this world. I think that's what Job's friends were dealing with, the fear of grace. If you give Job grace, what is he going to do? Is he even going to get better? Is he even going to try? Is he going to get off the mat? Grace is scary. Grace is amazing because it runs against the grain of the curse, shocking us into unconditional acceptance with God. And again, the reality is because law, because the world has conditioned us so much to law, we've gotten all too familiar with life of curse. But God's grace to you is displayed not by your ability to get out of your suffering, but in your mere ability to accept his. Look to the cross. Believe in grace. Let's pray. 
God, I do pray that you would give us hearts that are ready to accept the realities of your gift. Father, I confess so many times I try to clean myself up in order to make myself acceptable to you. I try to work through the my own thoughts about what is acceptable, my own rules about what would be clean and what would be honorable and what would make myself at least in some way approachable. But Father, we know, just as Job's friends were actually telling us, there's no way on our own we can get to you. There's no way we have enough capacity, strength, capability to clean up our act before you like we need to to get to you. Father, even as your word says, even by virtue of us trying, our very good works are like filthy rags to you. Father, the reality is you have conditioned this world by your grace. You have spoken into this world by means of your mercy. You have shown us on the cross your willingness to embrace our suffering, to take on our shame, to embrace our sin, so that we might be set free from the burden of lawfulness and acceptability. So, Father, I pray that we would run and accept the realities of your grace. Father, forgive us for acting like Job's friends, for being Job's friends to other people, but also believing the lies of Job's friends. Father, free us from the burden of religion and just allow us to rest on the soft pillow of it is finished. Pray these things through Christ. Amen.